everybody. I invite you to turn to the Old Testament, to the prophet, minor prophet book of Jonah. As you turn to the book of Jonah today, we announced last week that today we are kicking off a new three-week series entitled, Make a Difference. In the topic of what it means to live generously. So the focus of our series is really to look at how God lives generously to us. Now, I want to give some context of us, some theological notion and practicality of where we are when we say us, right? When I say this, God, how does God live generous to us in much deeper understanding of doctrine? How does God live generous to us sinners? People who have rejected him, people who have spat in his face, people who are called his family, his ohana, how does God live generously among a people who reject God? I want you to think about that. I I want it to weigh heavy on your heart. And in light of that question... I believe the only way we can answer this very question is what we've been preaching for the last six and a half years of our existence, and that's through the Scriptures. We believe at Ohana Church the Scriptures is 100% accurate. It's not fallible. In fact, it's infallible. It is enough. Scholars call it the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need experiences We don't need modern signs and wonders. We don't need so-called modern-day prophets and apostles or televangelists to, to help us understand the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scriptures are enough. As we learned all through week through biblical theology, how to study rightfully in an expository way, in an exegesis way, not an eisegetical way, but a way that is exposed directly from the text. We believe the way God lives generously to us sinners is found in the scriptures. And we get to Jonah. How many of you remember the story of Jonah? I'm not going to assume that everyone in this room knows the story of Jonah. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share the narrative, the story, the setting of what's happening. There's a boy, a man named Jonah. God calls him by himself to preach judgment on an Assyrian nation in the town called Nineveh. All right? And it's in this town God calls Jonah there. Jonah does not listen. Sound like the kids you're dealing with right now in this room, right? Don't listen. And we may be pointing the finger, but sound like us in general, right? Jonah runs. He goes to a place called Joppa, today known as Jaffa, right? And and there he jumps on a ship. He runs away. And God, who is sovereign, who is Lord of all, who's the creator of the universe, right, is seeing every stinking thing that Jonah is doing. Hello. That's what makes him God. We can't hide from him. He jumps on the ship. God sends a storm. 
Jonah confesses to the sailors who are fearful for their life that it's because of him that he, the storm is occurring. So these sailors, by the approval of Jonah's request, Jonah tells them, throw me in the ocean and the storm will cease. Something significant happens, right? They throw Jonah in the ocean, but it doesn't stop there. These sailors come to know the Lord as their Savior. They repent at the end of chapter 1, right? They trust in the Lord as their personal Lord and Savior. The story doesn't stop there. The most popular event takes place. And everybody knows if you grew up in a Christian background. God sends a big fish, swallows up Jonah in chapter 2. Jonah is sorrowful. Jonah is regretful. Jonah is repentive. And he asked God to forgive him of his sin. Three days, it says, that Jonah spent in the belly of this big fish. After upon repentance, we get to the latter part of chapter 2. And God allows the the big fish to spit out Jonah on dry land. And then we get to our portion in chapter 3. A continuation of this prophecy in which God demonstrates to us how he lives generous to sinners like Jonah, like these sailors, and even the city of Nineveh. Would you stand with me in the reading of God's word? As you stand, put your finger on chapter 3. We're going to read through the first five verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that what? Great city. And call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city. Going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days. And Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them onto the what? Least of them. Epulikako. God, we are grateful that your word seasons our hearts. And God, we don't need a better facility. We don't need a better experience. We don't need a better situation. We need you, God. And you are revealed through the sufficiency of your word, God. And we pray that we would adhere to the scriptures. The scriptures that has been tested all of history all of humanity through the course of history in which it has been, it has endured and it will continue to the very end even when we're long and gone and generations after us are here. They will preach the sufficiency of Scripture. And God, we pray for those churches that don't preach the sufficiency of Scripture, that preach a soft message of the Lord that doesn't talk about repentance, that doesn't talk about sin, but talks about man's of feel-good feelings. God, we pray that you would rebuke that through the sufficiency of your scriptures. God, we love you. We adhere to your spirit. In your name we pray. God's honest is loud and proud. Amen. You may be seated. 
The title of our series today, in, continu in continuation of making a difference, is what I have penned, living generously with the gospel. Although there is no gospel language or word for the term gospel until we get to the New Testament, the heart of the gospel is ever so present in our text today. The story of Jonah is much bigger than Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. But the story of Jonah is lived in a time of division. Can I get a witness, right? Are we living in a time of division, Ohana? Nothing's changed since Jonah's time. There is division in God's family. Specifically, two, one kingdom became two kingdoms. After Solomon, the King Solomon, as we've seen in the Old Testament, after he sinned against God, after he died, because of this sin that the forefathers of our faith have sinned and came against God, the nation of Israel became two nations. One in the south called, the, called Judah, and one in the north that we are looking at today called Israel. And as we look at this, there's, there's clear descriptions in Scripture who Jonah was in this divided kingdom. Specifically in Jonah 1, verse 1, and in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 21 to 25, you see that Jonah is confirmed to be a prophet of God. Scholars today call him a minor prophet because his book is not minor, but it's less chapters as in the major prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, who has multiple, many chapters. Jonah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. God's people were divided at this time. He was the prophet, one of the prophets of King Jeroboam II, who was an evil king, so evil that God raised up another prophet named Amos. You read the book of Amos, and Amos rebukes the king, Jeroboam II. There was 200 years of conflict between the Assyrians, the northern enemy, and the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians live in modern-day Iraq today. During Jonah's time, Israel, uh, Israel was actually the tougher, stronger kingdom between them and Assyria. In fact, Israel would go northern into this Iraqi area and also becoming known as Babylon in the book of the prophets. And they would take some of the territory of the Asia, the Assyrian Empire. They would also conquer God's people, of the Israelites of the northern kingdom, would also conquer a place called Damascus. We know in the New Testament that Damascus is the road in which who walked upon? Paul. So there's a lot of historical, theological meat from this text today. But there's a conflict. Like in any plot, in any setting, there is a conflict. And I want to share with that conflict on the screen with you what that conflict is. God calls Jonah by himself, with nobody else, just by himself, to head to a foreign place, one that, that his nation was in conflict with for years, and preach judgment over them. To put things in perspective, Dr. H.B. Hearson says this, thus to put God's command to Jonah in perspective. It would have been similar to asking a Jew in Spain during World War II to go to Berlin and condemn the city and its people in the name of their Jewish God. 
Could you imagine that? Could you imagine God calling Marcus, go to North Korea, man, and preach judgment to that brother named Kim? That's the intensity. That's the conflict of this text. And I will let you know as we dialogue through this text, we will see a generous God in a pagan setting. We'll see a generous God in a disobedient setting. And so what I want us to see is two observations of our scriptures today. Right? Number one, God lives generously through the proclamation of the gospel. Read that with me. One, two, three. God lives generously through the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, God is serious about this gospel message. So serious, he calls Jonah to go to a pagan place called Nineveh. And listen to me. Listen to how, look how serious this was as we read through and we talked through the narrative. Jonah had no choice on not declaring God's message to the Ninevites. Listen to me. I know this is, and we, as we explore this text, it's for this setting. It's for Jonah's situation. But I will be bold to say this is for us today too. We have no choice but to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't act one way here on Sunday, then we go to football practice tomorrow and act somewhere different. Or our job, or the place. We are commanded. There is no option in declaring the gospel of the Lord. How do we know this? Well, if you did not see the text, if you did not understand the narrative, homeboy got swallowed by one big fish. He had no choice. When God calls, he commands. When he commands, right, listen to me. He means it. And God lives generously through the proclamation of the gospel. And we know this because the first time Jonah disobeyed, he experiences the wrath of God through this big fish, the storm in the big fish. We get to chapter 3. And I love what it says. Listen to me. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Listen to these words. The second time. Thank God our God is a God of grace. That God would have been just and right to send Jonah straight to the place that Jonah confessed in chapter 2. Sheol. In the Greek, Hades. In English, hell. I don't think we take this location serious. A guy I was talking to a few weeks ago was joking with me about the nature and location of hell. And he laughed, oh, Hawaii, I don't go to hell, man. I, 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 man. <laughs> I want to go to hell. And in my heart, my heart broke. Do you know what you're saying? Saints of God, when you use the word H-E double hockey sticks as a normal thing in your conversation, do you know what you're saying? Do you know the location and the ramification of the place Sheol and Hades and hell? In Revelation, it talks about this place. It says it's a place of fire 
where your soul is burning and it's not being consumed, but you would feel the pain for eternity. And Jesus comes on the scene and provides the atonement and answer for us in the New Testament. And I love that Jonah didn't have to wait for Jesus, <laughs> but the gospel was ever so present in the words of the Lord God Almighty. Jonah, go. Second time, right? And this is what he says. Look at the screen. Preach these words. Arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Here's the proclamation of the gospel. Are you ready? This is where it starts, and this is where churches aren't big. You ready? Call sinners out. You like when big attendance in your church? Don't call sinners out. You guys understand what I just said? You want a genuine gathering filled with people who don't feel condemned? but feel honestly, true, genuinely loved by the Lord, call them out. Call them out. You will see, you will see where God is tearing the tares from the wheat, the genuine from the ungenuine. Call them out in their sin. The Assyrians were that people. They were evil people. Nineveh was one of their major cities. The term great city used in verse 1 and 2 right, is defined this way in theological circles. It represented the huge population of Nineveh, possibly around 120,000 people. This population were due to the conquering of neighbor nations like Israel. Assyria would go into Israel. They would do what is called today sex trafficking. They would steal all the women and children from these nations like Israel. They will bring them to their big cities like Nineveh. And they will do whatever they want to these beautiful women and pretty young daughters that we have in this room. Sex trafficking wasn't just big today. Since the fall of man, sex trafficking has gone out and grown. They were evil to how they treated these Israelites. In some senses, the Babylonians became a part of this whole area, Iraq, that we know of today. And we know by scholarly thought that both the Assyrians and the Babylonians will grab even men, would dismasculine them, so that the seed of their loins would no longer produce children. This is genocide. This is evil. And you see something beautiful in the text. Hear me out. There is no condition in Jonah's prophecy. Meaning, in the Hebrew language, there's only five words. In the English language, in this prophecy, we get eight words. Verse 4 says it, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be what? Overthrown. There's no condition in these words. What do I mean by it? God did not tell Jonah to tell the Ninevites, unless you Ninevites repent, you will be destroyed. That language is not in there. God judges Nineveh, and God says completely, without the language of conditions and the word repentance, you're going to die. You're going to die. It's not like some of us parents, the way we deal with our kids, right? Man, I wish you would. If you act up one more time, 
I'm going to spank you. And they act up one more time, you know, spank them. Oh, you act up one more time. This is the second time you're saying that. So you're probably being like God, right, right now. I'm going to party you. You know, party them. And you get somebody as good looking as kind of core with his hazel googly eyes. But daddy, no. What God says he means. God is not giving a condition in this text. The prophecy is clear in five Hebrew words. Forty days, all of you die. Every last one of you. If you're like me, then I'm questioning the series title, right? I'm like, where is the generosity in death? Where is the generosity in genocide? I don't see generosity in this text. Do you, based on this understanding of the prophecy? I see judgment and condemnation. That's all I see. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is where the gospel should start. Not that God loves you, but God's judgment is on you. One amen. But in America, we make the human feel so valuable that our framework of the gospel is that you're so precious. God's love you just the way you are. I'll say it clearly. Hell no. God's wrath is on you. God's judgment is on you. You deserve hell. Like the Ninevites, we are going straight to hell. And despite the intense judgment of this prophecy, there's something beautiful that takes place in Nineveh. Here's my final observation. God lives generously through the promise of the gospel. This promise is called the covenants of God. The Bible teaches us that God made covenants with his people, Israel. These covenants would not just be a blessing for them, but through them, God would bless every nation and generations on the face of this earth. Even the paganistic, the heathenistic, evil Assyrian nation and the town of Nineveh. I want to explain to you where these covenants are. You should write it down because this sets the platform for the gospel all the way to the very end. Genesis 9, through Noah, God will reestablish his covenant and multiply the earth. What was the sign of this covenant? The rainbow. We rebuke any organization that uses it for their divisiveness. It's not a gay pride symbol. Amen? I'm going to preach like I'm going to die today, okay? No, it's a sign that God's grace is manifested on this earth. When you see rainbow, you see a miracle. How can science can't define why rainbows happen? Philosophy can't decide why rainbows happen. Only God can define. It's a promise. It's a miracle. God lives generously through these covenants. The second covenant, in Genesis 12, through Abraham, God will bless all the nations of the earth. What is this sign? Well, the sign is at, at Genesis 20, when Abraham is told to kill his only son on the altar. 
But God tells him, no, I have a perfect propitiation, substitute. You guys see where we're going? Number three, Exodus 19, through Moses, God reminds the Israelites of what he has done for them and what his purpose is for them. What is the sign? The Ten Commandments, the tablets of our faith. In 2 Samuel 7, through David, a son, a true king, will reign on his throne for all the nations to see forever. What is the sign? The temple that we talked about last week. God gives us a physical sign for a spiritual, theological sense. These promises is lived out in the confession of the Ninevites. Are you, are you understanding me? There's no condition in these texts. God doesn't say unless the Ninevites repent that he's going to save them. It just says you're going to die in 40 days. You'll be judged in 40 days. But in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Jonah, it says, And the people of Nineveh, say that big B word with me, believed. They believed God. Now listen to me. It did not say they believed Jonah. It says they believed who? God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And what happened? Revival broke out in this 120,000 people city. Right? And what happened? They repented. They asked God for forgiveness. The Ninevite king himself repented and called for a nationwide fast prayer, and repentance. Not just the Christians repented, like how we have in this political realm. Everyone on the face of this nation repented. This would be Donald Trump. This would be Biden. This would be Obama. Hawaiians. This would be the Kamehamehas. This would be Lilio Kalani. This would be Liho Liho. This would be Heva Heva. The high priests will be everybody in the kingdom and the nation on their face repented before God. When was the last time you were broken about your sin and know that judgment is at your door? But we come into America freely devoted to worship whoever, whomever, whenever we want. We've taken our freedom for granted. We've used it. We abused it. We rejected God. In religious freedom. Listen to me. This is not the norm in the world. Not every nation can be like America where we can freely worship God. Then how much more should we be like the Lord? How much more should we repent? Jonah 3.10 clarifies. When God saw what they did. Let me say that again. When God saw what the Ninevites did, get ready, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. Hear me out. It says, and he did not do it. This is the promise, and this is the beauty of the gospel. The Old Testament is filled 
with this very message. Through the covenants. Through God's people. And so here's some arguments I want us to look at, right? How did they know, the Ninevites, how did they know how to respond rightfully to Jonah's prophecy without the communication of repentance? I think that's a great model of sharing the gospel. What if we just preached hellfire brimstone and leave it there? That's what happens in this text. There's no sign of faith. There's no sign of belief. There's no sign of repentance. So we're like, then how do they know to repent? Here's three arguments that I believe scholars address. The first argument, one of the reasons why they repented is the fear and power of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was so tough at this point, so strong, that Nineveh, knew about them coming through Damascus, as I shared earlier. That's the first argument. Second argument, the influence of the stolen woman and children. The Ninevites knew that what they did to Israel was an abomination with these girls and with these women. Therefore, the strength of this northern kingdom would come hard. And the final argument Simply the sovereign act of God. I would say that every argument actually confirms with one another that these are the reasons that God allowed these Ninevites to repent of their sins. All these three arguments is not divisive against each other. They actually historically and theologically complement one another. What we can hold on to is this. God is generous. However they figured out how to believe, however they figured out how to repent to the one true God, is not the issue. They, their concern is that, right, and the, the blessing is that God gave them salvation. God relented. God didn't do what he said he would do at the moment, but God did do what he said he would do before the foundations of the earth. Before, with the covenant that God will free even pagan cities like Nineveh and Hilo Hawaii for the cause of his name. Let me give you some Hawaiian history. When the first Christian missionaries came to Hawaii, in Hilo, at highly Christian church where there is, there's a family who still live today called the Lineman family. I played football with some of the family members of that family. And the, the original um, first missionary, the Lineman family, encountered paganistic practices on the, among the Hawaiian people. The Hawaiian people were known for incest. And the Hawaiian people, and this is written down in history, the Hawaiian people specifically would encourage little children's Four, five, six-year-old, as early as that age, to participate with the adults in this incest. And God tells these holy people to go to these, this kingdom and to free them from their actions, their sinfulness, right? We know years later, almost 100% of the kingdom of Hawaii will come to be known as Christians. They will be 100% literate. 
with the alphabets only a few several years old because they had no language, written down language. And it is the gospel, like the Ninevites that was freed from their heva, their sin, that God used this same gospel in the 1800s to free our ancestors, you who come from Hawaiian background. Your people were rescued. Why? Because of this judgment call of repentance through the covenants of God. Our God is a generous God. He's generous. Look at how, look at what happens when we see this generosity lavished out with Jonah's response to God. Here's a warning. It's up on the screen. Don't be like Jonah. In fact, what happens in the text, the story of Jonah ends with him being mad at God for saving these Ninevites. He even asked God to kill him. He can't handle it. I can't handle that you're saving people down in Paneva. I can't handle that you're saving people down in Keokaha. I can't handle that you're reaching those pagan, heathen people. I can't kill me, God. Take me right now. This is what Jonah is doing. He's complaining about God being generous. And then we don't know why he runs away from God in chapter 1 until we get to chapter 4. And this is why we have to be an expository preaching church. Chapter 4 gives us the answer of why homeboy runs away from God. Look at this. It's up on the screen in chapter 4, verse 1. But it what? Displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was what? And he prayed. Right? This is a precatory prayer, a prayer of murder. You see it all through the scriptures. He says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Here, you're going to find the answer why he ran to Joppa. He goes, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish is considered a place in Spain. So he wanted to go 2,000 plus miles away from Joppa. Here's the answer. He says this, for God, I knew that you are a what? Gracious God and a what? Merciful you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to what? Live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is a rhetorical question, meaning that God is not asking to, because he don't know what the answer will be, but if there's anything we learn in Jonah, you will realize how foolish someone is when they contradict themselves. First, Jonah is saying, I ran because I knew you're gracious and merciful. But then now, the gracious, merciful God he's talking to He's asking him to kill him on the spot. But there's a problem, guys. God is gracious and merciful to his prophet. God is gracious and merciful to you. God is gracious and merciful to this nation. 
God is gracious and merciful to those who do not deserve him. Even, even those sex offenders, God is gracious and merciful. We love it when God is gracious and merciful to people who are somewhat good, right? But that is not the text. God is gracious and merciful to all people who repent of their sin and trust in Him as sovereign God and Lord of the universe. God is merciful. So here's the conclusion. Listen to me. Jonah is a reminder of the people of God, Israel. When Israel disobeyed and had forsaken God, they also had forsaken the mission of God meant for them to do which is found in 1st Chronicles 16 that they would declare his glory among the what nations ohana we must live generous with the gospel not with our money not with any that's not what this talk is about this is about your mouth your heart you have people in your home that you may deceive be deceived thinking they know God but they probably don't know God you have people your co-workers that you may think has a form of godliness but it's not the God of scripture you, be, you may be married to someone that you think is a follower of the Lord. But there's nothing about their life that looks like repentance. There's no, there's ego, there's pride, there's hostility, there's laziness. There's these fruits that look nothing like what Nineveh is experiencing right now. Look at what they did. It was a nationwide fast. It was a nationwide on their knees. It was a nationwide brokenness of their sin, meaning they cried. They cried like literally with tears. They begged God for salvation. How did Jonah in his pride, in his arrogance, how did he make a difference in this situation let me be very clear he didn't but God did even when you run away from God God still promises that he will he will live his covenants out to sinners and sometimes we need to go through seasons that swallow us up amen I pray your prayer every morning is this you ready I hope you're ready, because this is going to be a different prayer maybe for most of you. I pray your prayer every morning is this. God, smash me. God, break me. God, discipline me. God, throw your discipline so hard on me that God, I physically have to get on my knees and God, I have to come to you in my prideful heart and say, God, I cannot do it. God, I need you. God, I'm filthy. Just like Isaiah, woe is me for I am unclean, but my 
eyes have seen the precious King, and he cleansed my lips right before my eyes, and the angels shout and sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, the way I'm passionate about football, I need to be denounced to God. I am filthy. I am sinful. God, I am sick. Tomaselli is nobody. I am unworthy of the calling that you placed on my life to be your son, to be your child. God, I get a lot of arrogance in my pride. God, break me from me. Break me from me. It's not the people attacking me. That's the problem. It's not my boss, God. It's not my spouse, God. It's not my football program, God. It's not the community, God. It's me. I'm the problem, God. I think I'm all that, God. I think I'm the greatest man of all time. God, smash me from me. This is the kind of preaching we need today. A preaching of repentance. If we just preach God loves you, it's easy to receive love. But love has a cost. And a thousand years later, that cost would be demonstrated through a perfect son. A covenant that God promised with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Israel, with Moses, with David, through Solomon, through these pagan nations. A promise will come. He'll be born in a manger. He'll be grown up as a real man, but 100% God in the flesh. And John in his gospel says, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the answer to humanity. Issue with sin. Who takes away the sins of the world. His name and only name is, help me out, Jesus. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the one that is and is to come. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the kingdom redeemer. He's the one when I don't understand. He makes understanding to the power of his Holy Spirit. He's the one who said to Stelestai, all power, all finish, that in my guilt and shame, God rose me from the dead. When Christ died, I died. When When Christ was buried, I was buried. When Christ rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. Why? Because God is a generous God. Oh, how that makes me want to live. Oh, how that makes me want to sing. Oh, how that makes me want to shout out to my boys in the homestead. Why I love Jesus. The hymn goes like this. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Now listen to this. He gave his life. What more could he give? The song goes, oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. He gave his life. There is no bigger generosity in Christ 
apart from understanding, he gave his life. May we not be Jonah. May we not be Israel. May we be the kingdom of God, which was established that the nations of the earth may know him today. Do you know today in Iraq, where Nineveh is, today, the fastest growth of Christianity is happening in Iraq today. And you know why it's happening? Because persecution. Well, well I, well the, the Islam people are attacking Christians in the faith. The Christians are attacking Islam and Iraq with a different weapon. You ready? The scriptures. Prayer. Fasting. But here you sit comfortably in AC. This is not trying to condemn everybody. This is to press your heart to the Lord. Therefore, we're going to respond today. I'm not the king. Jesus is the king. And he's calling us to do a church-wide repentance today. You ready to repent today? Every one of us. For those who can. We're going to start with the men in your six-foot distance apart, right? Even if you're on the screen, the men will start for those who can. Come to this altar. Let's repent together, man of God. Let's repent. Come now. And as we repent, women, here's a perfect thing you can do. Where you sit, women, you can stretch your hands over us men. And you can ask God to be with us, that we would be broken over our sin. God calls men to lead their family. God calls men to share the gospel. God calls men. You come up. And women, you pray out loud. You pray like you've never prayed before. I'm going to join them. All right? Everybody, stretch your hands to the men. Women, pray out loud. Pray for strength. Pray for power of the Holy Spirit to come among us. Men, you just cry out to God. One, two, three. Pray. God, would you say that? Repent of your sin right now. Cry out to God, men of God. Do it. Amen. Hallelujah, Men to lead the charge. 
You've given us the calling to lead our families, to lead our spouses, to lead our communities, to lead this nation. You've called us to step up. That's the role of a complementariness. In the scriptures, you've called us. Oh God, you've called us. Now man, would you stand up where you are and turn around and look at our women. women this is what I want you to do women I want you just to hold your children tightly those who have children for those of you who are by yourself just grab your own heart women would you touch your own heart men of God would you stretch your hands to the women and men of God as as the leading the charge for the kingdom of God with the power of the Holy Spirit I want you to verbally proclaim a prayer of peace a prayer of joy, a prayer if there is need to be repentance that these people, that these women would repent of their sins and trust in the Lord. I want you to pray it out loud. I want the women to hear you all pray the scriptures. One, two, three, pray. of our families the beauty that is seen through these mothers these grandmothers these aunties these sisters in the faith we pray for the beauty of the gospel to transform their hearts and therefore would transform the generations to come that Lord as you told Titus through Paul tell the older women to teach the younger women how to submit to you, how to submit to their husbands, how to love and enjoy the scriptures together, how to be in fellowship with each other, and even in the things that we don't completely understand. We pray for faith. We pray for trust. Lord, as a church, Ohana Church of Hilo, Hawaii, on this specific day, this Sunday morning, we repent of our sins together. Amen. We cast all our anxiety and our cares and our burdens on you at the same time. And Lord, we pray that we would not be the Christians who just focus on Ohana Church. But when we leave today, we would love people to the beauty of Christ. In your glorious gospel, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, God's Ohana says loud and proud. Amen. Give the Lord a clap.